All right, so this is episode two of our Cosmos Safari podcast, and back with us uh, is Rob Webb. Here welcome, welcome, Rob. How are you doing? Doing all right, doing all right. Just got back from a trip to Colorado with my family. Um, just absolutely gorgeous out there. We got to go through the Rocky Mountain National Park. We did that. I forget what road it is, but it goes up and multiple switchbacks. It's just absolutely gorgeous. Um, it, I hadn't been out west like that. And to see how big those mountains can be and how you can see avalanche evidence, you can see where the forest fires were. It it was just gorgeous. Got a couple astro photos too, which I'm still kind of oh, cool. looking through. So I'll have to share them with you some sometime in the future. But it was just absolutely cool. Plane rides were smooth. So I, I'm happy. So awesome. All's pretty good. How about you? Uh, I am doing well. I have... Uh... Just got back from Chicago. I did a NSTA National Science Teachers Association uh, conference with um, simulation curriculum and talked all about the Starry Night software and Sky Safari software that they use and publish. Um, had a great time, lots of interest. So let's talk James Webb Space Telescope today. Mm-hmm. Um, the James Webb Space Telescope, if you don't know, folks, <laughs> is uh, the brand new observatory that uh, NASA, ESA, and I think Canada are the main, um, the main, <laughs> yeah. So NASA contributors. <laughs> yeah, NASA is the main contributor, and then ESA and the. Uh, Canadian Space Agency are all involved okay. in James Webb. So um, that launched a few months back, and we are just now seeing the first uh, data from that with the images. So um, most people have seen that if you've been paying attention online. Uh, today we're going to talk about that as well as some of the future of James Webb and what we're excited about. Mm-hmm. Now, before we start, I want to I want to start off with a little quiz for you. Just two. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Okay. Okay. And these are just two questions that I thought would help inform what I have prepared as far as expectations. You've prepared things. I've prepared things. Nice. Imagine that. Um, so first quiz. Okay. First question. What year is multiple choice? This one's multiple choice. Hey. Um, what year was Hubble launched? Was it 1983, the year that I was born? Was it 1990? Was it... 1991, when Nirvana's Nevermind, Pearl Jam's 10, and Metallica's Black Album were released, the best year for music that's ever been. Or was it 1994 when Green Day released Dookie and the CD was passed around my elementary school classroom because it had naughty words on it? Oh, my. Oh, this is hard. Uh, (laughs) I am going to say... 1991. Oh, you're so close. 90. 1990. I was going to go with 90 and I decided not to. I know, I knew that there was the 30 year mm-hmm. anniversary. Yeah. So I knew it was at least that old. Right. Um, okay. But yeah, so 1990. 1990. So just think we've had um, Hubble up there for 32 years. That's a good thing to think back to when we're talking about web. Right. Um, and lastly, how old is the universe. Ooh. And you can give me as many uh, significant figures as you'd like. I'll just do one, because I would say that that second 
decimal place. Uh, so 13.8 billion is the number I'm going to go with, uh, because I've seen the other one change every few months, uh, <laughs> for most of my career. So right. I'm going to say 13.8. That's good. You're less than 1% off. Um, right now it looks like it's 13.787. So it's 13,787,000,000, give or take 20 million years. Okay. So you, you are well within the range. Well, well done. Nice. I would have said 13.7. Okay. But... Yeah. 13.8, uh, is the number that just came to mind. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that that's going to change with web telescope data. We'll see. Maybe mm -hmm. not. Yeah. So, um, so that gets me into what, what, what I have prepared here, which is, um, you know, what are we excited about with James Webb? You know, why did I make my son, he did it willingly, but why did I make my son wake up on Christmas morning to watch this thing launch? Why did I do that? Right. right. Um, and that's one of the things about science is number one, it's the questions that we don't even know that we are going to ask. Right. Right. We have a whole set of stuff um, that we know we're going to find or that we know we're going to investigate. But there's going to be all kinds of things that we don't know that we're going to find that are surprises and we're going to adjust things. Um, I think that's the best part of the science. You know, you find the answer to why or how, and then you think, well, why or how is that the case? And it just, it just keeps going down and down and down. Um, and I have an example from Hubble. Um, there was this Hubble key project uh, that concluded that the Hubble constant, the Hubble constant, I don't, I'm not going to go too deep into that, but the expansion rate of the universe was uh, 72 plus or minus seven kilometers per second per megaparsec, right? But that was something that wasn't what anybody expected. Apparently, there was a team that thought it was something like in the 40s or 50s. There was a team that thought it was in like the 80s, 90s, and turns out 72. Yeah, you know? yeah, right. Like the it, it, it's interesting, uh, and the interesting thing too is like you know one group says this, one group says this. We figure out somewhere in the middle, and then okay, we just give up on those two wrong answers, and we go with what we found the evidence for. Exactly, um, which I think is amazing. We found the other moons of Pluto. Like, you know, Sharon or Karen, like we already knew that one, but then we have Nix, Styx, Kerberos, and Hydra. We didn't know we were going to find that. Um, Hubble Deep Field, um, which I actually have a picture of up there. Um, the Hubble Deep Field and then the Hubble Extreme Deep Field, um, it found 5,500 galaxies in a region that takes up just one thirty-two millionth of the sky. That's wow. the Hubble Extreme Deep Field right there. And so when you add in what we know about galaxy formation and the expected, you know, population of small galaxies that are too faint or too distant to be seen, I mean, we're talking a, an approximate 2 trillion galaxies within the observable universe, right? Now, the cool thing about this, though, too, this was not planned when Hubble was launched. This was some somebody. I did you give the present? Somebody gave a presentation about this at one of our astronomy meetings, where basically this was a risk. Somebody was like, "Let's just find a spot." I think I may have done it. It's hard to remember. Yeah. I did so many presentations <laughs> for that yeah. uh, for our club. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it was uh, part of 
yeah, the director of NASA at the time has discretion over a certain number of the hours for Hubble. And I, I knew that that's going to be the same as well for James Webb Space Telescope, uh, where they're allowed to choose what it is to observe. And, and that was the idea is to pick a patch of sky that appeared to have zero in it, nothing at all, and just expose that part of the sky um, continuously for, I think it was about a month. Yeah. And, and that's the result that they got. Yeah, the, yeah. the Hubble Deep Field. And so that's the stuff that we didn't know we were going to find. Right. You know, I got one one more. If you switch, it's the uh, gravitational lensing, um, which I know that there were predictions about this, right? But we had never taken pictures of gravitational lensing before. And Hubble was able to do that. You know, right there, what you're looking at is um, the, the ring around that sort of star in the middle. Um, that is a far off distant galaxy that is behind that yellow orangish star, but because of the gravity um, of that star or of whatever that is in the foreground, it bends and sort of makes a lens. Gravity right. makes that into a, like a right. magnifying I glass. I think what we're actually looking at is a very large galaxy. It's a, a spherical galaxy. Oh, so galaxy. this is a spherical galaxy with right. some sort of a spiral galaxy behind it? Uh, I, it's hard for me to determine what exactly that other galaxy looks like because of all of the distortion, but you're probably right. Yeah, it probably is a, yeah. a spiral galaxy or something. So, I mean, that that's really my big thing here is, you know, what special, interesting, risky observation will we make with Webb? That, here, you know what? Let, let's take a look um, at the pictures that they did. And this is this is actually on Hubble site or sorry, Web site. Web. It's the website for Web. Of course. I haven't heard that one a million times. But um, so this is a cool thing. It's got sliders that actually help you see the difference between Web and Hubble. Wow. And it is just ridiculous. And so take a look at the actual images that they came back and compare them to what Hubble did, which is why I, I brought up Hubble in the first place in that quiz. So. Um, you're taking a look here at a planetary nebula, right? So the star that exploded and is pushing out this gas bubble. And, you know, because Webb is so much bigger and it, had, and it takes different light, right? It takes more infrared stuff. You start seeing something uh, a bit more, well, A, you got more background stars. But then just look at that detail. It's crazy. And I'll put it right in the middle there, right? I mean, just, you know, it's, it's less fuzzy, it's more um, resolved, and you can see more detail going out farther, you know, that just consider the difference of what you can learn from a picture taken with your cell phone versus a picture taken with like a telephoto lens and, you know, really good. You, you just, you just made Hubble a cell phone camera. Just realize what you said. It's a comparison. That that's that's just stating though how how much advancement there yes. has been, right? When we can now compare Hubble with a cell phone camera versus a full, you know, camera that you would use for like a wedding or something. Right. Like that's right. crazy. That I think there's the, that much the gap of a difference. Is even bigger than that. You think so? Um, maybe maybe cell phone cameras from five years ago. Wow. You know? Okay. That's, that's what I think. Bold, uh, bold words. <laughs> Um, let's see, let's go to the, oh, Southern Ring Nebula. There you go. Now, this was my favorite one. This was the Carina Nebula, um, right here. 
And the Carina Nebula is a star-forming region. And Hubble's, actually, it only does part of it, right? Okay, because the camera size is different? Right. Camera size is different, and I assume they mosaiced it together. Sure, they, yeah, they did. Uh, and, I mean, even just with Hubble, I mean, that's gorgeous, right? That's right. a place where stars are being born. You can see the clouds of gas and dust You there. see those little eggs, those evaporating gaseous globules, which is the stellar nursery, the birthplace of stars, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. That sounds like a band name. Eggs. Eggs is the acronym. Okay. Evaporating gaseous globules form stars. So eggs make stars. Okay. Isn't that weird? That is weird. Yes. <laughs> but then as you scroll over, you can see more and more detail. And my understanding is that the you go back there for a second i'm seeing more structure at certain places in the hubble image like see those little go back keep keep going right there right right as you just passed it that little like wispy thing that's coming out the top that's mm. disappearing from the oh, yeah. image and that's that's once again one of those things that it's not seeing it necessarily as a complete increase in resolution but a different type of light Mm -hmm. And that little wispy thing is obviously not hot enough to see it in the James Webb image. Right. Or, so, or vice or versa. It's, uh, it's or it's too hot. Enough. It's in the light. Right. Spectrum. It's a visible it's spectrum. Right. Right. Hubble. But that reflected light is not in the infrared. Exactly. Enough. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Other way around. You're right. So, yeah. So we're seeing things differently. Like even look at this guy right down here. Right. Yep. And we just move that over. Boom. Yeah, you're just seeing much more detail yeah. in certain areas. And you can see through that gas with the infrared. So, so here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a pin in not just what, you, you know, is something that may look obvious, which is that there's a higher resolution here. There's actually not. What do you mean by that? Uh, if you read the media kit, it makes very clear that the resolution of James Webb is similar almost identical to that of Hubble, but just in the infrared. What people are not taking into consideration, and these are NASA folks that are even saying this too, is that longer wavelength infrared waves, you need a bigger mirror to achieve the same resolution. So they designed James Webb Space Telescope to match the resolution of Hubble, really? but in the infrared. So a lot of this structure and a lot of the messaging that they're doing here with this is actually kind of wrong. Um, it happens, yeah. It's new information, but it's not necessarily higher resolution. Okay. Yeah. It's it's looking at the same thing with a different lens. Correct. Different uh, type of light. Different type of light, yeah. Right. Yeah, so the, the, this is a galaxy cluster with Hubble, right? Now, this is not the ultra-deep field, but it's, it's kind of close, right? And you can see all kinds of little faint fuzzies, you know, all different galaxies, and then we bring Webb into it. Boom. Now, those little uh, diffraction spikes, you'll notice that you see um, those spikes coming out of certain objects, but not others. Those that are showing us the diffraction spikes are stars. Right. Everything else is a galaxy. Mm -hmm. um, and now the reason there's a diffraction spike is because these are point sources of light where the actual structure of the James Webb Space Telescope is causing that to happen you can see that there is a similar diffraction spike on that same star that rob is moving it over right now from the hubble 
Um, but there's less less of them, and there's more with James Webb based on the construction of the actual telescope itself. Yeah, uh, I thought the coolest things that you can see in this one is look at all those gravitational lenses right there. That's awesome, right? All those warped galaxies, right? And so any anything in here that is not doesn't have those diffraction spikes is a galaxy. That's awesome, <laughs> right? I mean that that is just amazing. Right. I mean, this is a good picture. This is instructive. You get a lot from that. You're going to get even more with that. Cool. Let's move on. And I think the last one. Ah, uh, yes. Stefan's Quintet. Yeah. So this is Hubble. This is Webb. What do you think of that one? Okay, so um, we've got a number of galaxies here that are actually not only in the same place in the sky, but they're also very close to each other in actual three-dimensional space. And you can see some of that uh, tidal tail and the top galaxy there, Rob is highlighting right now, um, where there are a bunch of stars and gas and dust that have been kind of torn off of one galaxy uh, as a result of the gravitational interaction, galactic cannibalism, as they call it, um, between these galaxies. So, but you can kind of make out, kind of Hubble. make it out in the Hubble. And I'd say, look once again. I'm going to kind of say what I was saying earlier about the just the different details. Not necessarily higher resolution, but just different details from one to the other. So Hubble is better in other ways, mm -hmm. and and I think that. Once again, the messaging for that, you know, of course, they want their new shiny thing to be the best, mm -hmm. but it's not really the purpose of it. It's not meant to be better than Hubble. It's different than Hubble. Yeah. Yeah. They, they got to kind of work the difference there, right? Like it is better in many different ways, but it's also different in many ways. So they got to. Right. You know, it's a, it's a tool for every job. Yeah. Right. And this is just happens to be the right tool for this particular set of science that we're trying to do. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So there are the pictures. Um. I know my son and I, we watched the whole thing together and it was cool. He was very excited. So, okay. Question for you. Mm -hmm. If you had to choose an object that you would like to see with the James Webb Space Telescope, what would it be and why? Orion Nebula. Okay. Right. We already talked about that. But yeah, because I want to see more. Where are the stars in there? Right. Okay. Because you can see through the clouds, right? Um, uh, probably also the the Ring Nebula, right? Like that's amateur astronomers get that, right? You can get pictures with your telescope with that. Hubble's taking pictures of it. What are we not seeing? What is in the infrared? What kind of extra clues do we have around that one? So, um, you may not know this. I maybe you do. Uh, but you're going to get your your chance to see that. You're going to get the chance to see the James Webb Space Telescope picture of the Orion Nebula. Oh, I would hope so. But here's why. In one year, James Webb Space Telescope will be doing an all-sky map. Ooh. That is, that is the coolest thing I have learned is that the James Webb Space Telescope is not just going to be looking at one little patch of sky like Hubble was. They designed it to have a very wide field of view, and over the course of about a year, it will be able to map the entire sky. Nice. Yeah. 
Wow, that's going to be cool. Right. Put that on Facebook in a 360. Right. Right. <laughs> or go to like, a, yeah, your VR space, yeah. your metaverse, right? You can mm -hmm. check it out in the metaverse. Oh, wow. Yeah. I wonder how deep that's going to go. I don't know how much exposure time they're going to put on each of these images. I don't but... think you can put a lot of exposure right. time. Right. right. Without doing other science, you got Yeah. But, but that is one of those kind of like director of NASA type of decisions mm -hmm. that that's what they want to use it to do. Well, I think that makes sense because if you want to reach the public and you want to say, oh, here's this, here's that. I, I think it's amazing to just be like, here's one picture of the entire universe that you can look up, down, left, right, zoom in, zoom out, go at it. Right. And we already have these all sky maps from other telescopes. It's not novel in that way. It's just that the resolution of that particular wavelength is going to be the highest ever we've ever gotten for this longer, longer wave infrared. Yeah. Which is going to be good. Yeah. It's going to be very nice. So, so then after that, yeah, it'll just take particular objects and, and do more. Much more, right? More integration time, more time on target. And that's how you really gain much more information is, is sitting on a target for a long, long period of time, taking lots and lots of photos. And then just like in amateur astronomy, you stack them in post-processing mm -hmm. uh, and you get the best possible image out of it, yeah. which won't be possible for the full sky, of course. Um, but you'll get these these really good pictures still, yeah. nonetheless. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's awesome. I hope it turns out really, really well. Like, I hope it looks all well blended and, you know, because you know how sometimes the pictures, you can tell where the mosaic, like, where the right. mosaics overlap or whatever. Sure. sure. I would think they can do that pretty well. Oh, they can do it very well, yes. So um, on my way out to the NSTA conference in Chicago, I had a chance to read through the... Uh, basically the media kit for James Webb Space Telescope. So I thought I'd just share a few things about that. And uh, the first thing I just want to kind of go over briefly is um, the science. Uh, so the James Webb Space Telescope science is uh, categorized into a number of different categories. Um, the first of these is the study of the early universe. And so for uh, many people who saw the first images, uh, you know, we had that very first effectively web deep field uh, image, and it was all the way back to the very beginnings of the universe. Um, this time, just a few, you know, 100 million years after the Big Bang, um, a place in the universe where we have never seen before because it was too far for Hubble and it was too, um, too recent for the cosmic microwave background radiation that radio telescopes are able to get us. Mm -hmm. And so it just was in this place where it was actually designed to meet that need to, to fill in that missing gap in time. And so this is for me, I think one of the more exciting things is that we are going to start to learn more about that, that era. Mm -hmm. And that era happens to be the time when we, we, have to have galaxy formation, star formation for the first time. Right. Um, so we, we know of a time we were able to observe times before galaxies and times once galaxies already existed, but we still don't have any way to know how galaxies form. Mm -hmm. And this is going to provide that knowledge all of a sudden. And so I'm excited to see what they come up with. So I, I went to the NSTA conference and there I actually had the chance to hear from someone from Northrop Grumman who actually designed 
the James Webb Space Telescope and and put things together um, for multiple countries, right, are involved. And they were talking about how some of the early pictures that we have now have a higher level of oxygen in the actual universe than we thought was going to be there. And I heard this and I thought to myself, well, how could that be the case, right? If, if that's in fact true. Let me guess. I mean, high mass stars exploding. Yeah, exactly right. what I said. So not just high mass stars, but stars, and this is, this is my gut feeling, stars that are bigger than we've ever could have imagined. So big that they can explain supermassive black holes as well. Ooh. That's my idea. A single star creating a supermassive black hole. A million, millions of solar mass star in the mm. early universe, right? Because there's so much density in the early universe. It's so, so possible. The gas is so abundant and it would be able short -lived, to live because the bigger extremely short-lived, right? And so I just have this hunch that we're going to find out that there were early, early stars, supermassive black holes were formed from them. And that's why supermassive black holes exist everywhere. Pretty much is you had a number of these really massive stars, they blew up. And when they blew up, they created a supermassive black hole and all the other dust and gas got swept up around them. The supernova guts effectively. And that's why we have more oxygen than we thought we should at that point. Cause it, it was created yeah. really quickly. So what do you think then? Would that be, <clears throat> I would assume those supermassive black holes are still around. Well, yeah, would that's they, um, the same supermassive black holes that are in the middle of our galaxies. So you're saying that the um, Cygnus X1, right? That's the supermassive yeah. one. And, yeah. And, yeah. That one could have been made in like the first 300 million years of. Right. And Sagittari Sagittarius. Uh, our galaxy, uh, Milky Way galaxies, black hole, mm -hmm. uh, Sagittarius A is also one of those. And, um, yeah, pretty much every galaxy has a black hole in the center. We now know. Right. And so, yeah, I believe that we're going to find evidence and this is completely just a hunch mm -hmm. that, that those early stars were that big hmm. or, then... or at least much, much larger to the point where, when they merged that it was not much, not many mergers were required, I guess, of black holes to form the supermassive one. Wow. That's, that's, that's my, that's pretty cool. That's my hunch. Okay. Cool. And we'll I see like if it, that. we'll see if it pans out. And, uh, I can't write scientific papers as a PhD cause I'm not a PhD, <laughs> but I can certainly put out a podcast that I can date. Yep. So as of this date, uh, July 27th, 2022, that's my, that's my personal hunch. Okay. I won't call it a hypothesis, but that's my hunch. It is. Is it a testable prediction? I guess so. Mm, I think it's. A I have somewhat of knowledge in this area. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You. You. I'll take it. Yeah. I'll take it. That's my I, hypothesis. I would call that a hypothesis. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, okay. And then next up is galaxies over time, and so this kind of falls into that same boat, mm -hmm. right? So galaxies are forming. We now know how galaxies are formed, and now we can watch how they evolve over time as they get closer to that era that Hubble has already informed us on. That's going to be the legacy of James Webb. We're going to get that data finally. We're going to know how galaxies evolve in a very similar way that we now already know stars evolve. 
stars go through an entire life cycle. We don't know that information yet for galaxies. We should know after James Webb. Star life cycle. Once again, um, so stars early on in the universe, maybe they fall into this hypothesis that I have. Maybe they don't. Maybe I'm proving completely wrong. But nonetheless, we're going to start to have a better understanding of the life cycle of stars, especially stars that are those really tiny ones that we know last for the entirety of the universe, right? Those red dwarf, uh, stars. Red dwarf stars. Yeah. So they would have been in their infancy um, in the early universe, and they're still around. So we can follow them along the way. So that's pretty cool. Uh, other worlds. Um, and please feel free to chime in on any of these, Rob. Mm -hmm. um, other worlds. You know, we're talking about stars um, that have planets that go around them. So these are extrasolar or exoplanets. Um, and James Webb Space Telescope has a, a special corona graph on it, which basically will... Uh, be a shield of the ability to block out the light from a star so that you can see the planets going around it. Mm -hmm. And you'll be able to get some really good high-resolution in, in information from these. Now, it may not even be uh, resolvable of you know the surface, but you will be able to see like the composition using mm -hmm. spectroscopy of its atmosphere mm -hmm. for planets that, that are going to transit in front of the star. And the amount of information that we're going to gather about these exoplanets that we've already discovered is going to be amazing. And from what I understand, it's um, James Webb is already looking into the TRAPPIST-1 system, which is one of our best Earth-like uh, planet stellar systems mm -hmm. that we know of. I believe it's yeah. seven total planets, in, and two of which I believe it is that are uh, just like um, our earth or very similar to our earth yeah this is one of the things where the um the second picture that they showed in the grand unveiling which of course my son and i watched as well it was it, it was interesting because he was like he was like dad this is this is boring but i can't i can't stop looking <laughs> <laughs> i mean the honesty of kids right yeah yeah i was like yeah they could they, they could do better sorry nasa but your production was a little disjointed there but i get it um but anyway, he was watching, and the second picture was a was a, a graph, it was right? A data graph, which to anyone who doesn't know much about space science and, and exoplanets, they would have looked at that and been like, Meh, "What does it mean?" Right. <laughs> right. And I think they did a decent job of explaining that. And they said, "You know, we're we're finding planets, and we're trying to see like where is the oxygen." You know, where might we see liquid water, that sort of stuff. And I thought, man, that is really cool. But I didn't think the picture did it justice unless you had that base knowledge behind it. I think that's, a, that's where they could have done better is they could have explained, well, what does this information help us understand, right? Yeah, it was... I think they did a decent job, but, I mean, they were looking at five amazing pictures, so, you know. Right. They, they did what they could. Right. Those are the main mission targets. Uh I also did see that it can do things within our solar system as well. That's what I was going to say too. Like, what are we going to find out? Cause we've, we've had telescopes on our planets for ever, you know, ever since Galileo pointed his telescope at the sky, right? Like what else do you think we're actually going to find using the different wavelengths now? Like what? Right. And we're going to be into the mostly infrared with 
the James Webb Space Telescope as opposed to Hubble, which was mostly the visible light spectrum and part of the near infrared. Mm -hmm. This is more into the like long wave infrared, which is a, a little bit different in just what type of things you can see exactly. Yeah. I don't know. I was thinking, you know, if, if we are looking, I was thinking maybe that would help us learn more about the inner layers of the planets. Because I know the question I always get is, what about Uranus or Neptune? Like, is it is it a solid core in the center? Is it molten? Is it is it you know? And I still feel like whenever I look it up, it's like, well, it could be this, it could be that, you know. Like maybe we can get yeah better understanding. Of I what think the I think you're is. still gonna see just the atmosphere, unfortunately, because mm. um, the you know thermally the the gas giants are pretty hot as you go down just a little bit into the atmosphere uh it gets dense enough where they're heating up pretty good mm. and so i think you're still gonna be limited to see but you'll see different parts of the atmospheres yeah. um just deeper into the atmospheres for sure but uh, as far as it going down into the planets um it might be helpful in understanding like volcanism too mm -hmm. so if you have for example we are still unsure what's going on with venus mm -hmm. right um venus is potentially very volcanically active and we have a hard way we don't really have a good way of of finding that out yeah. right now um but the atmosphere there is like 800 degrees so <laughs> it might cause some issues seconds, as well you know. yeah well you never know right <laughs> that's the whole the whole question is what are we going to learn that we didn't expect to learn right right i i think one of the interesting things is going to be how long does james webb space telescope last right <clears throat> what is the longevity here and that's why I asked the question about Hubble, right? It launched in 1990. It is 32 years later, and it is still working. Granted, we had the ability to send people in space shuttles to fix it and, and yep. adjust it. So that that extended it. Webb, we don't have that. Well, it's up there. That being said, the, the representative from Northrop Grumman, mm -hmm. um, he was asked that direct question of, you know, what about potential for repairing it? And he said, well, you, of course, that as most of you probably already know, there is no plan to repair it. Um, it's got about 10 or so years of the cryogenic uh, material it needs to cool the camera sensors because these are needing to be very cold, given that we're working with infrared or heat mm -hmm. um, as our main target. Uh, the there one instrument requires it to be actively cooled which means that we have that limited lifespan of about 10 years till we use up all that cryogenics mm -hmm. um or it could be somehow recharged maybe um but that's the question are we going to be going out to do that the other instrument on the other hand is passively cooled um and so at least one of the cameras actually will continue to function and that is really a question mark um, everybody keeps giving the 10 year lifespan as far as fuel goes to be able to keep its spot in the orbit. Uh, the orbital insertion that NASA did was so, so good yes. that they believe it's going to easily meet its 10 year. Like it was supposed to be five years oh, really? to 10 years. That was the, the goal. Um, they think it's going to be well beyond 10 years now and possibly even up to 20 years. That, that's what I have written down here. I heard, I, I read that it was 10 years of science is planned, right? 20 years is expected. And then who, who knows? knows right? right. I mean, we, we still get messages back from one of the Voyager probes, right? You know, like a teeny tiny signal every now and then, but like, we know where it is and 
Sure. It showed us where the heliopause was, and that was launched in 1970, 1971, something like that. Something like that, yeah. So, like, I'm, I want, you, I want you to make a prediction now. Okay. Okay, let's do two. A, is it going to be serviced in the future? Yes. Okay. They're not going to waste all this money. I need to get there, though. So, uh, 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 hold your horses. Here's what the Northrop Grumman guy said. Okay. He said, they're, they've got some amazing robotic systems that are going to be, they've been challenged in ways that are similar before. And he said, I don't see why a robot couldn't fix, couldn't refuel or repair James Webb. Okay. They know, they know everything about it. They just need to be able to get a robot out there. And that's just another rocket launch. How about this? I'll say not until the 2030s. Oh, I don't think they're going to need, hopefully, well, to do that. they won't need to, but yeah, I don't... Right. Yeah. Interesting. And you'll have okay. some of these very large uh, rockets that, mm-hmm. um, you know, the likes of SpaceX and uh, Blue Origin at this point yeah. have uh, in development. And we've got SLS with the Artemis, yeah. like our last podcast, we talked about Artemis. You know, those are going to be actively online systems. I don't see why we wouldn't. Mm. I think that it would be a waste for them to just let it true sit. Yeah. I wouldn't see it happening for the next 10 or 15 years. Though. Right. And well, like I said, hopefully gotta, they won't need to. Yeah. And also you got to think about how long it took web to actually be planned, built about 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. So right. As soon as they if, got Hubble up. Yeah. They had already had this one on the drawing boards. And so even if you give like, you know, 10, 10 years till they want to do it, it might be 20 before they actually get to launch something and get it up there. Now it's not as make or break as actually putting up the web telescope, but still, I don't know. I feel like there's going to be more, more mountains in there than, than what we think right now. But I think, I think it'll be good. And the question is how long until it goes completely. Yeah. I don't know. I would think 30 years. Right. I think it's probably until they just make something that's that much better too. But then you look at, I looked up uh, Spirit and Opportunity, our twin rovers on Mars, right? Do you, do you remember how many days were planned? No, no idea. 90. Ah. 90 days. Three months were planned for that thing. And I have that Spirit lasted a thou- thousands of extra days. And Opportunity, who just passed on June 2018, um, that was five thousand plus days. Wow! So you're 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 talking that it, it lasted, what, fifty times longer than expected? And those ran off of solar power. Yes. Guess what? So does James Webb Space Telescope. Yeah. That is a big deal. So when something's running off of solar power, you know, it is really, you know, the, the limitation of the hardware, not a fuel source for those things. Mm-hmm. The fuel source, of course, of keeping it in orbit, it's a different story. But, mm-hmm. you know, if you have like a plutonium source, um, like the uh, newer rovers yeah. do, then you do have a limited power source that will eventually run out, period. Didn't Voyager work yes. on Pluto? And it's that's still, still running. running. And, well, it's, and we engineer it so that it doesn't need as much to run because of, right. you know. I mean, you always want to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I'm, I'm just super excited about this because of the stuff that we don't even know that we're going to find out, you know, I'm, I'm excited to see what, what we're doing with the age of the universe. Um, and you know, the fact that, you know, 
Webb will be able to see back to about 100 million to 250 million years after the Big Bang. After the Big Bang, yeah. Right. Um, and, and that's because it's doing the infrared stuff. Right. And I think there, there's other things out there. Like, we're not going to be able with Webb to see the very beginning. Right. No, it's not designed it's not to do that. Designed for that, and that—that's something. When I was looking up, I was like, "Man, we're going to get this refined." It's like, well, but 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 we already really, but we already do have that with the cosmic microwave background exactly. radiation and radio waves. We don't need it. We already knew mm. that stuff. It's yeah. this weird like missing link. You know, it's the Bigfoot of the universe, right? We're trying to figure out what we're trying to figure out what happened in that in that gap, right? right. Um, so I really do think that we've got. Uh, really great future for james webb um i will say i did ask uh also the north of grumman guy i said you know what about potentially just reusing this design you know how hard would it be to just make another james webb now that we've made one hmm. um and and to follow that up i said with the larger rockets that we are currently in the process of developing launching soon mm-hmm. um what about scaling it up making an even bigger james webb type space telescope and he said well he said the real thing is the the design is now done as you said it's it's dollars it's financing it um he says that's the biggest challenge it's not an engineering design challenge anymore that we've already determined and figured out mm-hmm. um and as far as scaling it up he said this is only about 80 i think he said about 80 percent the size of it, it could have been within that launch vehicle oh really they could have actually gone a little bit bigger but it was budget mm. that they caused it to slim it down and so they could have already gone bigger and then we're gonna have these massive you know rockets that are going to be able to support you know i think it's like nine meters across mm. where as the current um fairings on rockets that like this one the Ariane rockets that this was launched on are about five meters mm-hmm. so we're talking almost double the diameter you could put a massive, massive telescope that folds up just like this inside. So I think that is what's going to kill off James Webb. I think you're going to see the development of a space telescope that makes James Webb look tiny. Well, okay. Just like, just like James Webb makes the Hubble look tiny. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't see putting up another one. I don't, I don't think that would make much. much I, I don't, I don't know of a reason why if this does its mission, properly because this no, is gonna I mean, have an all exact, like almost exactly the same as james webb maybe in like 10 or 20 years as this one starts limping along launching another right. one. Eh, maybe but we didn't do that for hubble we did do it with the curiosity rover and now the mars 2020 rover though yeah, it's yeah. Ad- almost an identical chassis the instrumentation on board is different okay so if there's a development of new instruments different types of instruments that they could put onto it and do a different job that's true. Yeah, make then, it different enough. Right, that it does different mission. Can you have two at the Lagrange point? Yeah, there's tons of spacecraft at the L2. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, this is not a single... It's a, this space is pretty big. Well, that's true. They just put it in orbit, you know? Oh, they put, oh that's right. It's in orbit around it's that... In orbit around L2, yeah. So then you can have multiple... You can have a bunch. Really? Not an unlimited, of course, but you Fair can enough. have a bunch. Huh. Yep. Didn't think of that. Nice. So, uh, yeah, I think that's what's going to take, eventually take James Webb out of commission is, is, you know, aging slash new developments that are going to just make it look tiny. But 
We're not there yet. We're not there yet. So web's amazing, right? It's going to be doing, going to be looking at this guy in different, with different eyes, right? I'm excited to see first off things in that different light, but I'm also excited to see what are we going to learn that we didn't expect? Uh, Let's do a follow-up to this, um, you know, maybe a year out from now and just kind of see looking back, you know, at what our hopes and dreams were for James Webb, uh, you know, in in the meantime, what has happened. So, you know, let's look at next summer, um, you know, next July or something, we'll try to get together again for another podcast and we'll talk about one year with James Webb. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I think by then you'll start to see some of the other science coming out as well. And we'll be able to dig in a little bit deeper um, with that. So um, once again, this is our, our Cosmos Safari podcast. I'm Dave Farina. This Rob is Webb. Rob Webb. Um, and we're going to bring the universe closer than you think. Thanks for listening, everybody. Right. Take care. Sounds good. Keep looking up.